welcome to the War Studies podcast. We bring you world-leading research from the School of Security Studies at King's College London, the largest community of scholars in the world dedicated to the study of all aspects of security, defence and international relations. We aim to explore the complex realm of conflict because the study of war is fundamental to understanding the world we live in and the world we want to live in. again, these human rights norms can be thrown out the window and and under the guise of saying, well, these were private actors, so we're not responsible to that. In today's episode, we look at the murky and sometimes criminal world of private military and security operations and why they pose a threat to women, peace and security objectives. Police and humanitarian workers were frequently involved in not only the facilitation of forced sexual abuse and the use of children and young women in brothels, but in many instances became involved in the trade by racketeering, bribery, and outright falsifying of documents as part of a broader criminal syndicate. Women were being trafficked and raped by soldiers and police officers sent to keep the peace. These were the words by whistleblower Catherine Volkovac from Nebraska, employee for DynCorp Technical Services, a U.S. company providing maintenance support for the United States military, as well as recruitment of American officers for the International Police Force. DynCorp, a private military and security company, had earned one billion U.S. dollars worth of contracts to deliver these services during the post-war peacebuilding period in Bosnia in the 1990s. Bulkovac had been posted to Sarajevo in 1999 to investigate sex trafficking of young women from Eastern Europe into Bosnia. What she discovered was deeply disturbing. A network of brothels and bars where kidnapped women were sold as sex slaves to service the United Nations and military bases, with officers employed by private military and security firms like DynCorp from a range of countries including the United States, the United Kingdom, Pakistan, Germany, Romania, and other government contractors and local organized criminals. As she took her concerns to her employer, she was blocked, sabotaged, and even her life was threatened. DynCorp at first demoted her, then sacked her six months later, claiming that she had filed erroneous timesheets. It took her two years to win her case against unfair dismissal. Yet despite all she had unearthed on DynCorp, in 2003, the company was awarded another contract by the U.S. State Department to provide services in Iraq. While sexual violence, trafficking, and coercion feature as particular violences against women by private actors, it's not the only form of violence they experience. More profound is the broader forced labor activities that include passport confiscation and debt trapping, which bonds workers into unfree labor practices. These practices have clear gender and racial components to them. It is within this broader context of forced and unfree labor, often further obscured in silence when it's at the hands of international private actors, for which this story about DynCorp materializes. Human rights investigators were never allowed to fully investigate the abuses of DynCorp. The young women were simply sent back to their home countries, while suspects were moved from this mission to another mission. Serving on a United Nations mission gave them full immunity against prosecution to this day. As evidenced by this case, and so many other cases of human trafficking into forced labor, the murky middle ground held by the private actors further exacerbates this kind of violence, and indeed many other forms of violence against women. 
Hello and welcome to the second episode in this special three-part series for the War Studies podcast marking 20 years of women, peace, and security. I'm Amanda Chisholm, guest presenter on today's episode. I'm a senior lecturer in security studies and researcher in gender and security at the School of Security Studies. King's College London. My research offers a feminist political economy and security look at global security markets. I'm delighted to be joined by two leading experts working in women, peace and security. Dr. Jamie Hagen is a lecturer at Queen's University Belfast. She specializes in the intersection of gender, security studies and queer theory, including LGBTQ inclusion in women, peace and security practices, as well as a queer analysis of security studies more broadly. Our second guest is Professor Saskia Stasiewicz, who is a professor of international politics at the University of Vienna. Her research expertise covers feminist and post-colonial international relations, security privatization, private security and military companies, as well as the integration of women in the military amongst a variety of other emerging cool research projects. Today we're going to be talking about a key area of war and conflict we feel is missing from women, peace and security agenda. We believe it's time WPS included provisions relating to the escalating threat of private actors hired to provide military and security services as well as other logistics in conflict and post-conflict settings and um, what their presence posed to international peace and security and human rights including um, specifically for security of women. The exponential growth of private military and security companies since the early 1990s as well as other private global actors such as transnational mining companies are increasingly important challenge for the WPS agenda. And as you heard from the introduction, when private security and military companies are hired in the name of upholding security and peacekeeping in conflict zones, this can have incredible damaging consequences for local communities, and often especially women. Yet, as they are private rather than state-led actors, they often fall outside international legal frameworks upheld by the United Nations, NATO, and individual states. So we see a situation where atrocities in the case of sexual violence towards women are committed in conflict zones with little to no consequences for the perpetrators. Saskia, I'm just going to turn to you. I wonder if you can explain a bit more about the role of these private security and military groups and why we've seen such a significant growth in the privatization of war in recent decades. Sure. Um, well, security, state security functions have been increasingly outsourced to private actors, and this has mostly been done in the name of cost reduction, effectiveness and efficiency. Also, probably with the, with the promise of uh, decreased public scrutiny, and this has led to the growth of the private military and security industry, certainly with the so-called war on terror as an important um, source of that growth. And um, since then, PMSCs have been increasingly involved in military as well as civilian security, for example, airport security. They are active in armed and unarmed security, logistical support, security training, static guarding, consultancy and close protection, but also quite mundane tasks such as waste disposal and construction on military bases. And um, the key players in this business are global enterprises and they recruit uh, global workforces. Amanda, you talk about this in your work uh, quite a bit and also the, the uh, inequalities that come from that. And these companies have also diversified into various fields of security provision. And um, most are very dependent on their government and government contracts. So they're closely linked 
to their host country's security and foreign policy agenda in many ways. So while they might be uh, legally understood as private actors, they are not separate or in opposition to state actors, but instead st strongly connected to state security elites. Mm, that's fascinating. I wonder, Jamie, if you can weigh in on what are the specific gender challenges that you know come from the increasing privatization of war? Yeah, I mean, certainly the gender challenges are multifaceted, but when I'm thinking about this, I'm really thinking about two key questions. So why does it matter that this is that this gender when gendered violence is perpetuated by private actors? So specifically, um, what is the distinction that happens when uh, it is this violence is, is pri in a private space, right? But also, how does this violence fit within the larger picture of gendered violence within society? So it's important to remember that private actors, though, as we'll explore more, are actually in this gray area legally often. And that may actually be quite convenient for states. And so even if states are signed on to, say, peace deals that have really progressive um, intersectional approaches to, to understanding gender and to addressing gendered violences, or even these, you know, international human rights treaties, time and time again, these human rights norms can be thrown out the window and, and under the guise of saying, well, these were private actors, so we're not responsible to that. We definitely see this a lot in prisons and places of policing, right? And I think even looking at the United States, and there's been so much attention to the racial and gender dimensions of violence at the hands of those who are meant to be providing security. So certainly, this is happening in um, complex spaces as well. And, and can't, can't the, we should be learning lessons across these different spaces, right? I really like how you picked up on the, the intersectionality of all of this, right? So it's not just about, you know, gender itself, but the ways in which um, this is sort of violence and broader exploitation and whatnot is also, um, you know, uh, intersects with, with, with sexuality, with race, with class. I mean, I, I certainly in my own research on um, Global South workforces, the conditions of which they're often coerced into um, private security markets for a variety of different reasons, highlights the, the racial practices involved in who we recruit, um, but also the, the outsourcing of risk onto Global South workforces. And I think for me, this was... Um, the structural dimensions was with this was highlighted in the recent um, case within the Canadian courts, uh, out of court settlement between the Canadian government and a class action suit by Nepali families of um, security contractors that were killed in Afghanistan protecting the Canadian embassy. What I think this court case highlighted was uh, really the failure of international and national laws and regulations, and this failure of the market knows best logic. Right. Um, so these contractors were employed by a UK-based security company who proved negligent in due care and safety for these Nepali workers, and they were killed by a vehicle-borne suicide attack on en route to the embassy. Their deaths, for me, demonstrate how dangerous this work is, but also how that danger, again, gets outsourced to poor brown and black bodies for the global south. Um, and for me, it, you know, it also highlights the difficulties families have in actually obtaining justice when violations do happen, whether or violence happens, right? Whether, um, you know, it's sexual violence or, or, um, or other accounts of violence. 
And unfortunately, despite the out-of-court settlement, the payout, there was no structural changes to how the Canadian government hires security companies and their due diligence in the broader vetting process, which again, you know, reinforces what you just said, Jamie, around states sometimes benefit from this blurring and from these gray areas. Um, so just turning to Saskia, I wonder, you know, you talk about uh, particularly this this term of privatization of war as a gender phenomenon. And I just wonder, again, returning to that, what, what do you mean by this? Well, uh, I mean, to a gender scholar, anything is a gendered phenomenon, right? Uh, but particularly warfare and political violence have long been shown by by feminist uh, scholars that they've they're very intimately linked with understandings of masculinity and femininity and also a political participation of men and women. So um, if we accept that warfare and political violence are gendered, then surely a shift in the actors that are involved in this um, is also gendered. And um, in the sense that unequal gender relations are the context in which security privatization even happens. It's the background against which we uh, should understand and analyze it, but it also shapes and transforms these very gendered um, relations and gendered hierarchies. Yeah, you know, I think you're right. For gender scholars like us, this this becomes immediately apparent, right? But I think we all know when when we're talking to broader industry experts or whatnot, it just seems to be an issue that's not really widely discussed outside of these particular um, circles. And I just wonder, you know, um, Saskia and Jamie, why you think this is? Is it prone to being hushed up? Or is it because, you know, there's just a broader lack of... Um, um, data that exists identifying these, you know, um, you know, areas of exploitation, of violence, and of criminal activity. Well, like we already um, talked about, I mean, there's there's certainly a lack in legal and public scrutiny in generally when it comes to human rights abuses and gender-based violence in the context of armed conflict uh, and. Uh, PMSCs in particular, and this is, I think, partly because there's very little awareness uh, of the important roles that these companies play in conflicts around the world. So if there is media reporting on these issues, it is very likely going to be around scandals that involve state or international forces. And then also, Jamie has uh, said this already, there is this lack of, of legal accountability and responsibility. Very often it remains unclear under which uh, jurisdiction abuses are are even prosecutable. So, is it the host country of of the of the company? Is it the home country of the contractor? Is it the deployment country? And um, state forces, of course, in in various circumstances, are uh, clearly subject to martial law, and private contractors are not. Uh, so, this is another problem of, of um, prosecuting any crimes, and. Uh, then we have the regulation of companies within the countries and they're rather weak and the answer to many of these problems in the past have been self-regulation so uh, a, a rather misplaced belief that the market is self-regulating and that this will automatically lead to um, driving out bad apples uh, in the industry out of the market and this in so many cases we already know has not been hap happening so problematic companies being hired back repeatedly. Yeah, I mean, I, I'm still reminded of the work by Elka Krallman where she looked at, um, you know, the, the, the U.S. Um, Department of Defense 
uh, and their hiring practices on private military and security companies. And even when these companies have been proven to be, you know, fraudulent or other criminal activity, they still continue to get rehired, which totally speaks to what what you um, and Jamie both said is that, you know, market logics are are grossly ineffective here and they they don't work right um, in, in holding these companies accountable. Um, I just wonder, you know, so yeah, we've definitely highlighted that there there is a legal loophole here, right? And there's a you know certainly a gray area in which they in which they um, operate. So I just are are we then calling for these private companies to be brought into the fold, the focus within the WPS agenda, um, and by the WPS community? And if so, is this the best approach? I mean, wouldn't it be better to maybe tighten up international law and legal regulation frameworks to ensure these kind of atrocities are stamped out and brought to justice? What do you think, Jamie? So in some ways, this really reminds me of the question um, about whether or not we need a specific resolution for addressing LGBTQ experiences, right? So as I'm querying, as I'm looking at queering women, peace and security, sometimes folks will say in the Q&A, well, then do we need a, you know, 12th resolution to uh, look at sexual orientation and gender identity specifically? And, you know, I would argue that, uh, as I do think that many people on the policy side of, of this these questions is we already have the infrastructure to address these violences. It really comes down to whether or not it's a priority or it's actually seen as a problem, right? You know, as we're highlighting here, uh, there's a lot of benefits to this structure, right? Um, and so uh, I think if we lean back into that anti-militaristic approach, um, while also recognizing these problematic economic benefits of um, having this private space, um, then that that to me is more of the the challenge rather than um, you know it's it's not so much can international law really intervene here. It's sort of like how how in a way that would be um, when it is so incredibly beneficial to have these private actors in this sort of like in between, right? So. Uh, there's been and and related to this thinking about LGBTQ communities and sort of where they land with this homophobic transphobic violence as um, really quite undocumented but definitely happening in these spaces. There's extensive work on political homophobia and how it can be really quite strategic for states to use that um, as as a way to uphold patriarchal gender norms, and so I think. The, the logic of how that transphobic and homophobic violence would then be perpetuated by, you know, private security actors really follows. It, it makes a lot of sense why private actors would um, be be able to um, engage in this gendered violence against, say, trans women, and um, there wouldn't be a space that would be willing or even interested in in finding accountability for that violence. So to me, this kind of goes back to the question of, um, what peace and security looks like as imagined by these frameworks and sort of why, why is this falling through and who would be at the earlier point about who, who, who are we looking for to, to, you know, seek accountability? Yeah, that's a great point of who we hold accountable and, and how we hold them accountable. You know, if we do bring private actors into the broader WPS fold and agenda, um, Jamie, what would you like to see happen as part of countries' national action plans? 
So, yeah, I think that, as I was saying, that this really links up with, um, as I'm thinking about queering of security, how that can actually really reframe what peace looks like um, when we're working with these women peace and security initiatives. So I think the challenge here of bringing uh, attention to privatized violence is definitely one that's been evidenced as really important by queer communities, because it does highlight these sort of, you know, false distinctions between as, as, as research on gendered violence shows us this, there's not really this clear demarcation between peace and conflict times. And I think especially for those who are marginalized and, and more likely to be targeted um, with homophobic and transphobic violences, right? So I think, as I was saying earlier, rather than including this maybe privatization of war as a lens of thinking, which absolutely needs to be part of the project, it's it's really um, linking back up with that anti-militaristic approach to peace and security that continues to critique what security looks like, right? Whether or not a police force that is known by the queer community to be fully able to conduct crimes against LGBTQ people, which may actually be quite public and not actually have any accountability. Can the women, peace and security infrastructure kind of lean into having more LGBTQ people in those spaces as sort of uh, a feminist uh, initiative? Absolutely. Um, Saskia, did you want to weigh in on this at all? Sure. Uh, Well, I think before we even start talking about national action plans, which conceptually will also have to look very differently uh, considering you know how much uh, countries outsource and how much that is even an issue so for the austrian uh, national action plan i think for example um, private security would not be much of an issue but for the uk action plan it should definitely be one um, but i think before going into the na- uh, the national action plans we have to think more about how to integrate this uh, the notion of private actors into the overall agenda practically and conceptually and this really goes beyond the issue of simply private security companies and i think it extends to the question of how corporate actors as such and i'm thinking here particularly of multinational companies are often active agents in political violence but when it comes to the national level i think there is no way around regulation on the one hand, but regulation alone is certainly not going to alleviate the problem as a whole. So I think we need to ask the difficult question and invite states to ask that difficult question to themselves. Are any practical or financial gains that can be achieved through outsourcing, are they really worth all the problems that come with it, the human rights abuses, the unaccountability, the gender-based violence. So is it probably sometimes a safer bet to just not outsource? Mm. Yeah, uh, good question. And an important question, I think, to continue to ask. So we stop normalizing or just treating, you know, private actors, private security actors as just unfortunate but inevitable but yeah reimagining are are they even appropriate in these spaces um and i guess you know if if we look at the issue a bit more widely beyond wps i know there's you know there's been um certain feminists certainly have called for gender mainstreaming not only you know within militaries themselves but also within private military and security companies um for a variety of different um reasons and as as we've discussed these 
um, you know, private groups are usually heavily male-dominated, cis-male-dominated, uh, which have been detrimental to peacekeeping and community rebuilding efforts in post-conflict and conflict-ridden zones for a variety of reasons, not just, you know, um, with the embodiment of being male, but um, the, the certain militarized masculinities that, that come with doing that sort of work. What would be the effect of getting more women and people of diverse characteristics such as people from LGBTQI communities in these roles as security personnel and peacekeepers. There's always this hope, right, that a more diverse uh, military workforce is going to lead to less militaristic outcomes and less political violence. Uh, I don't know if that is true. Um, and I don't think we should put all, all our hopes into that. I understand it can be very important to strategically emphasize the added value of, of that kind of diversity in a military workforce. But I think um, we should just integrate these different groups because they have a right to be there uh, and not expect them to add anything extra that others can't. So for me, it's a question of rights and the rights of, of different people to be part of these efforts and they shouldn't have to prove that they're better at it uh, because research has already shown what kind of pressure that brings onto women peacekeepers for example and how um, much it takes the focus away from probably changing the behavior and the practices and the identities of, of male peacekeepers so um i don't think women or lgbtqi or, or any other communities should be uh, required to bring different qualities to peacekeeping than your stereotypical uh, male peacekeeper. Though I, sure, I am sure that they do bring different qualities. Uh, but I think instead we should ask what, what does the stereotypical male peacekeeper bring to the table? And whether it isn't this profile that, that we should be demanding to change. Yeah, I agree. And the way that this could be monopolized for, for pinkwashing efforts is not lost on me either. Um, I'm not especially convinced that, as I said earlier, that having maybe more LGBTQ peacekeepers, right, is, is necessarily the feminist project, right? Even though, of course, that is part of what gender mainstreaming arguments uh, would say. I, but I'm also really interested to know... Um, well, one, why aren't more people openly identifying as lesbians, as bisexual women, as being part of the trans community? Because there's definitely LGBTQ folks who are already doing this work, right? I, I don't, I mean, how many gay men are doing this work and, and how does it matter to how they approach this work? Because I don't think, you know, I agree, it's definitely not any essentialist claims that could be made, but also there's something to be said about what communities these people are a part of and what informs their understanding of peace and security. And so I do think there's room for intentionally looking to make those linkages, because I do think that could shape uh, and, and change the shape of what this work looks like.
reflections. What we're going to do now is move to the feature section of this podcast, where we look at the researchers behind the research and what compels them to explore their areas of expertise in the world of war studies. For me, uh, I became curious about private military and security companies when I first read about them in Middle East and African studies uh, module on just broader security in these uh, at these parts of the world. But I remember as an undergrad student at the time having no idea that states actually privatize security. Um, so this, you know, the phenomenon for me or this epiphany for me reading these articles, I think set me off on, you know, from then till now of um, looking into research into who these security actors are, you know, what motivates them um, uh, and their broader communities that come from to actually pursue this type of work. And I continue to remain curious as to why these private actors are not brought into the fold within broader state or international relations or regulations and the ways in which the market logic uh, competition breeds excellence and self-regulation um, continues. Uh, for me, um, privatizing the security roles hides the broader scrutiny like we talked about. Um, there's a double blind spot when states in the UN hire private security actors and then these same companies hire men and women women from the global south to further outsource risk. Um, I think these these are heavily problematic um, phenomenons that need illuminating and discussing of, of how we might um, do security otherwise. Um, how did you both come to research the WPS agenda? Like um, many private contractors, I think, come to working in this industry. So through, through state militaries and, and through my research on that, and uh, in my doctoral research, I was interested in how gender integration in the US armed forces um, was linked to, you know, how the idea of women as soldiers was linked to and developed in close connection to developments on military and civilian labor markets. Uh, and during this research, I, towards the end of it, I, I became very aware that we're only scratching the surface of, of the interconnections between military security and gender if we only look at the regular militaries. If we look at private security through the lens of gender, then it becomes obvious that, that there are multiple ways in which inequalities in the state and in private contexts feed off of each other and how, they, how the dynamics between them can exacerbate existing gender hierarchies. So this is very much in the feminist tradition of, of trying to dismantle uh, the public-private divide and I, I remain interested in that and how the gendered boundaries and transgressions between state, market, global, local, and national and international inform our thinking and also our theorizing of transformations in security provision. Amazing work. Yeah, and, and really good points. Jamie, what, what about you? So uh, I learned about women, peace, and security after, you know, I, I got my master's degree in international relations at Brooklyn College, but then I was really interested in finding, you know, my feminist motivations brought me to try to find a way to think about women's rights and global politics. And so I found this internship with the Social Science Research Council. I was living in New York City at the time, and they were running a project to bring together activists practitioners and academic work on women, peace, and security. So at this time, there was already significant, I mean, there's so much work on women, peace, and security, but um, as we know that a lot of times this work doesn't necessarily link up uh, between these spaces. So that was a really 
interesting avenue to be introduced to women, peace and security. And then I started working with peace women in the global network of women, peace builders and really became uh, really versed in how civil society organizations are using these resolutions and thinking about women, peace and security, uh, doing incredible work to bring gender perspective of a gender perspective to peace and security through, um, you know, the previously mentioned national action plans and various capacity building initiatives. But I was really compelled to see, uh, you know, to bring a queer analysis to this because I did see a gap in attention to queer voices in the space, which is someone who'd been part of and you know, continues to be part of feminist and queer organizing, I see so much of this work as being intersectional, as being linked, and actually so many, really frankly, lesbian, lesbians have been at the forefront of a lot of this women's human rights activism. So it, it, it was um, a dimension that I, I thought really needed more attention, and it's proven to be a really fruitful intervention to think about, you know, queering women, peace, and security, but really also the discourse about how those who are doing this work think about women and think about gender. And I think, you know, it's a really motivating thing to see that there is now, you know, Outright Action International as part of the NGO working group. We're seeing real movement on bringing in this attention to queerness and in women, uh, peace and security spaces. So, you know, I, I, I basically continue to ask the question, sort of where are the queers when we're doing um, this work on women, peace and security? So I would say related to that, something else that's exciting is sort of reclaiming these stories of, of queerness or lesbian, bisexual, trans uh, voices that maybe were edited out <laughs> because of, you know, strategic reasons or you know, maybe not being uh, brought to the archives in the same way that other actors have been. It's such a um, important political project to continue and to not only, you know, ask the question Cynthia Anlo always gets us to ask is where is the women, but also where are the queers, right? And and, and what that does tell us about power in, in who's rendered visible, who's not, who's taken seriously and who's not. And to do, like you said, that archival work of um, queers, uh, lesbians, they've always been at the fore of this, right? And so to write their voices back in um, as, as key um, activists and actors within this, um, you know, WPS, but also the broader kind of peace and research on militarism and violence um, more broadly. For me, reflecting on the 20th anniversary of WPS and how we, you know, think about that in relation to private actors and, and do we bring private actors into the fold of the spirit of the agenda and how we might do that? you know, raises a whole host of important questions of, you know, what, what, you know, that we've touched on, you know, even whether, whether they are appropriate, whether we should actually be privatizing this sort of security and how we might imagine security differently. Um, if we take, you know, security actors right now um, in their operations, I don't think these companies will change unless they're compelled to do so through robust legal mechanisms and contractual obligations that actually have consequences if they're not followed. Um, you know, they're, they're from my research on global security actors who hire um, workforces from the global south. Exploitation um, of these labor forces seem to be a part of their broader uh, economic and business model. 
And unless there's um, ramifications or serious consequences that um, that compel them to change, uh, I don't see that change happening. I'm hopeful for the agenda, despite you know many challenges. One of those challenges is to main maintain it uh, as a political project, one that uh, is contested and contesting. In this context, we need to you know, resist an uncritical approach to WPS language by actors whose solely, you know, sole aim is to advance their legitimacy and advertise gender equality as a market advantage. This will do more harm than good. These are just my conscious streaming um, thoughts around this issue. Uh, Jamie, for you, how much hope do you have in the next 20 years of WPS to transform women and LGBT communities' lives and improve peace-building efforts in conflict and post-conflict zones? Well, you know, I definitely am hopeful for it as a space for those who are looking to claim it critically, right? So you know, I'm hopeful for the women, peace and security agenda because I see it as encompassing many things beyond say, um, you know, the UN or the security council. So, um, there is of course the need to be critical in the implementation of women, peace and security, but I don't want to leave behind the work that these, the really incredible work that these resolutions are doing in a space right now where there's, so much uh, anti-gender organizing around the globe, right? So this is not just anti-gender rhetoric, which I feel like is maybe a way we were talking about it even as recently as a year or two ago. We're seeing the rollback on rights for women and increasing targeted harassment and violence against human rights leaders, uh, continuing transphobic and homophobic abuse towards those promoting rights for same-sex marriage and trans rights. So I, I, you know, certainly I think we need as many tools as we can get. And I think that there are all kinds of creative ways that people, you know, use, you, you know, women, peace and security resolutions and CEDAW and together different approaches in different contexts. Right. But a lot of the violence that's experienced by LGBTQ communities continues to be outside or at least seen as being outside of what is really framed as women, peace and security work right now. Uh, that said, I do think that there is a lot of feminist and queer organizing that's refusing this siloing. That's that's really, if you look, uh, you know, at actual, especially in spaces where maybe there hasn't been a functioning government, and I'm speaking from Northern Ireland, right? So when you have spaces where there literally is nowhere to turn except for to like support and provide these uh, the community and security for yourself, I think you do see the uh, bringing together of you know, cross-community work. Um, And so, for example, I think when you see the rolling back of access to abortion in Poland, some of the organizations that are the the first to really mobilize are those that have experienced something, you know, again, I'm speaking from Northern Ireland, I'm seeing there's significant mobilizing here to support and draw international attention to that. Uh, lack of access to abortion in Poland. And you see that in the space of Northern Ireland, where there's been linkages between queer and feminist organizing, recognizing this all very much as being part of security uh, issues in a post-conflict society, right? So this is, uh, you know, this cross-cutting organizing really keeps me hopeful about um, how women, peace, and security can continue to transform women's lives and the experiences of those most marginalized under patriarchal regimes, uh, whether because of their sexual orientation and gender identity or just the 
same, you know, it's the same misogynistic logics that, that drive the violences um, in this, in this anti-gender mobilizing. And I think that those spaces that are, that women, peace and security can really, and is already offering um, a tool for, for mobilizing, can, can really take advantage of, of this, of how this is recognized across different community spaces. So that definitely keeps me hopeful for where, where, you know, going into the third decade of this work, where, where the future might take us. And I think, yeah, the politics of hope here, right, is so important. Um, and, and locating that amid the very worrying rolling back of rights, the misogyny, the transphobia, the homophobia uh, that's happening, that, you know, there are still spaces of solidarity and transnational solidarity that's happening here. Fantastic. I want to just take this time to thank you both so much for chatting with me today about the WPS agenda and the broader privatization of war in uh, post-conflict and conflict economies and reflecting on what this actually, you know, what this means, what this means for um, feminist and, and queer projects around peace and demilitarization. This obviously is an emerging conceptual and empirical study within the broader WPS, and I'm very much looking forward to our knowledge exchange and collaboration activities going forward and to hearing more about um, how your individual projects and our collective projects develop. Um, in the in the next few months themselves, I want to f- finally say to our audience um, that you know we're all very pleased to say that this topic uh, isn't going anywhere, and um, uh, in that it's not being silenced, it's going to be further discussed and promoted. And to please stay tuned to learn more about where challenges are, but also where solutions um, can be found in how you know we we incorporate private actors into the broad. WPS Ames. Thank you. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. Thank you both. You've been listening to the War Studies Podcast, produced and edited by Lizzie Ellen and Aisha Khan from the School of Security Studies at King's College London. For more information on our work and to sign up to receive regular updates, please visit our website, which you'll find in the podcast description. If you've enjoyed this episode, please rate and review us on your preferred podcast provider. It really helps us reach more listeners. Thanks for listening and we'll see you next time on the War Studies Podcast.